We are Awakened Church in Bonesse, and this is our podcast. Welcome. Uh, I'm very grateful uh, for this book, uh, The Story of Daniel, um, as I've just been reading it over and over and just soaking it all in um, these last couple of weeks. It has just uh, cracked something open, and I definitely went for a dog walk early yesterday morning, and I was reading over Daniel 1, and I, I was moved to like significant tears. It was profound. So um, hopefully that uh, hints to you that uh, this sermon um, touches on tender places, and so I guess just um, I will talk a little bit, uh, like a very little bit about... Um, uh, disordered eating, and so if that is a subject that kind of can be hard for you, I hope that you uh, feel able to kind of get up and uh, walk around or take space if you need, but uh, uh, the sermon uh, it entirely um, comes from a place of love uh, as the love from Daniel um, flows in this place. So I'm going to begin by reading um, uh, the first four verses of the book of Daniel. <clears throat> we are told, in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power, as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. These he brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. Then the king commanded his palace master, or, because I did not edit this properly, the Hebrew there is um, the chief eunuch, um, the, the chief eunuch Ashpenaz to bring some of the Israelites of the royal family and of the nobility, young men without physical defect and handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight, and competent to serve in the king's palace. They were to be taught in the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So right away, the biblical scholar in me gets very excited by these four verses because there are a few biblical stories that are being alluded to here. And I think when there's a biblical story being alluded to uh, in a text, you're meant to kind of tug on that string, um, and then that entire story sort of falls on your lap. And, and so you see all these kind of connections. So my dream for this sermon is that we would enter this story uh, with our bodies as well as our minds, that we would see this world, the colors, the smells, the tastes. We would feel the fear and the loneliness and the wonder. And so um, just to kind of open up this text uh, to, to kind of expand our imagination a little bit, I want to just point out the two major biblical allusions in this text. The first one um, is a reference back to a very important biblical story. Uh, and the reference here is that they are brought to the land, the plains of Shinar, in like the sixth line there. Then he brought them to the land of Shinar, or the plains of Shinar. Uh, and this phrase, it goes back to Genesis 11 in the story of the Tower of Babel, or as you will find out in a moment, um, the word Babel and the word Babylon is the same in the Bible. It's the same. This is the Tower of Babylon. Uh, in Genesis 11, so even before Abraham, uh, we, we have already been set up for this Daniel story. In Genesis 11, 1 to 4, it says, uh, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, look, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they pr propose to do will now be impossible for them. 
So in Genesis 11 here, we know this as the Tower of Babel. Uh, and as I said, the word Babel is the same word as what we call Babylon, Babylon, the place of Babel. Uh, and the Tower of Babel was built on the plains of Shinar. And the plains of Shinar um, are a place uh, where the Tigris and the Euphrates River joins together, uh, where the great city of Babylon was built. Um, and all of the Babylonian mythology about their kind of supreme chief god named Marduk, uh, the plains of Shinar is where Marduk built a great name for himself. Uh, and Marduk, upon realizing that he might not... Um, well, that's a sort of, uh, uh, the, the Babylonians really believed that um, while a human man cannot achieve immortality, he could build a great city uh, and a great legacy uh, that would last longer than him, and that would be his immortality. And so city building, this great city to make a name for yourself, is an attempt to become a god, uh, and an attempt to have a legacy that would last throughout the ages. Um, and so here in Genesis 11, very early on in the whole biblical story, uh, uh, is this idea of empire. The idea of a nation that rises up and tries to gather the whole world to itself for the purpose of one single project, to become great, to become important, to become gods. And everyone is essentially forced to migrate towards the city and participate in the project. Um, but in order to participate in the project, everyone must speak the same language. Uh, we call this the lingua franca, one of the few Latin words that we still use. Uh, Latin was the language of the Romans. Latin was the lingua franca. Um, and uh, everyone uh, needs to speak that language and share in the project. And in Genesis 11, God looks down and knows this is violently dangerous. So uh, Daniel here begins at the plains of Shinar, at the site of Babel. And the king of Babel, Nebuchadnezzar, has gathered the conquered peoples of the world towards himself, and he forces them to assimilate to his one project. And this project will require all the nations to speak the same language um, and share in this uh, 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 dream of kind of global domination so that every tongue would confess that Nebuchadnezzar is Lord or Marduk is Lord. And um, secondly, whenever I think of the Tower of Babel story, I'm reminded of the way uh, empire still functions today and there is still a pressure um, for everyone in the world to speak the same language so that they too could participate in commerce and they too could participate in this one single project. And so I think of the great towers in our world um, that dominating nations uh, erect to kind of assert their goodness and greatness that kind of casts a shadow on the world. So the second story, which is also an empire building nation, is set within the empire, uh, the Persian empire, and that's the book of Esther. The Esther story is definitely alluded to here in Daniel. And that means a lot to me because um, when I first became pastor at Awaken for autumns ago, uh, we were doing Esther. And they're very similar stories. So in the book of Esther, just like in Daniel, there's a king who gathers all the people to himself to kind of force them to become good tools and good servants for, for serving his appetite for greatness. And so the king in the book of Esther had captured all of the beautiful children um, all, specifically the beautiful girls um, of the noble class. And that's exactly what's happening in Daniel. In Daniel, he's, he's captured the, the children of the noble class of each culture. Uh, and it's important to remember that one's, one culture's definition of nobility is not the same as another's. So um, it would be who do the Israelites say is great? The king wants those people. And so who the Israelites say is great or, or virtuous or noble might be different than, say, what a, a Blackfoot elder might say is beautiful or noble or a, a Japanese elder or an Irish elder. They, get, they gather the children of all these nations that they've conquered and then bring them into the care um, of uh, their eunuchs. 
And so the being under the care, being brought forcibly into the care of the eunuchs um, is also how the book of Esther begins. In Esther 2 we have, Then the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint commissioners in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in the citadel of Susa under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. And let their cosmetic treatments be given to them. And let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So knowing that the Tower of Babel story and the Esther story uh, are both in view here, I wanted to go off and talk about um, Joseph in Egypt later in Genesis, but I'll just say that and move on. What this tells us already is that um, the biblical text, the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, really represents um, the fears and hopes of the occupied peoples who are being subject to forced assimilation by a conquering nation. Uh, whether that conquering nation is Egypt or Babylon or Persia or Rome, these fears and anxieties are at the heart of our sacred texts. We know that the Esther story has more connotations of sexual violence than the Daniel story because Esther is chosen to be queen after months of training in the art of seduction um, and she spends the night with the king and she has no choice in the matter and her survival depends on her ability to assimilate and obey and bring pleasure to another at the expense of her own. Well, Daniel does not spend a night with the king. Daniel and the boys of the other conquered nations are all brought into the care of the palace eunuch, just like Esther and all those girls. Uh, and they're brought uh, here uh, to be trained in the ways of the Babylonian body, which we'll see in a moment. So it's like a special school where you are brought to learn the ways of the Babylonian body or body politic. And Esther is in that training institution for months, and so is Daniel and his friends and the other conquered boys. Um, just like Esther, Daniel will be given a special diet and special training until they are ready to appear before the king. And their readiness will be determined uh, by their ability to assimilate and stand before the king, appearing to have a body that looks like one acceptable to the Babylonians and the Babylonian idea of the good body. So it's interesting, though, because the fact that Daniel is brought into the care of the eunuchs, like Esther, um, and we know that ancient eunuchs were also captured peoples who had been castrated so that they could serve the king without posing a risk to his dynasty uh, uh, because they can't sire children with royal women and so kind of infiltrate the dynasty with their own identity. Um, this has led some biblical scholars to conclude that Daniel and the other boys were um, likely also made into eunuchs. Uh, and that that is an idea happening here. And if that is true, then there are possible allusions to sexual violence, uh, because if that is the case, we know uh, that empires depended on this idea that the people of the lands they conquered belonged to them. And the people, uh, the indigenous peoples of the lands they conquered are simply natural resources to be exploited or burdens to be eliminated. A beautiful person, as the Babylonians define beauty, could be used by their master however their master pleases. And a person who is not considered beautiful by the Babylonian standards could just be eliminated as a burden uh, and an obstacle uh, in the way of greatness. Jesus was eliminated in this way by the Romans because we know that crucifixion was intended to erase the name of a political opponent, of someone who imagines an ideal that is alternative to and even subversive to the one imagined by the empire. And Jesus is crucified, and this is a form of erasure and forced assimilation because crucifixion was so shameful that the victims of crucifixion, um, their families and communities would simply stop associating with their memory to avoid the vicarious shame. 
Uh, and so this idea and this fear and these anxieties are, are, are really um, so much at the heart of our great cloud of witnesses who have preserved these texts for us, generation to generation, um, that these are those people. So we already know in the book of Daniel, um, we are looking at a story of forced assimilation, a story of violence against real people, a story of severing people from their own identity and their own communities and their own innate goodness. And so, while preparing this sermon, I found myself moved to tears many times. I've reflected on the ways people I love and know, uh, have, the ways people I love have been told that they must fit into a tiny box designed to serve the purposes of the dominant culture. I have wept as I consider the ways um, my own life and my own body um, has been stolen from me in a lot of ways by insidious ideas of who I must be and whose agenda I must serve. And so in my tears, I found myself praying and praying for each of you uh, that you would be able to meet the love of God in this text, that you would feel the tender spirit approach you, palm open, so as not to frighten you or, or, or your frightened inner parts, and say without violence, I have no agenda for your spirit. You can see my intentions. Your wounds are like a crown. You were made for life, and you were created to take up space and to feel, and to have needs, and to be met with dignity, for you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You, O human one, are the image of God. Last week, this was an idea of kind of gathering the, the children of the world and saying, here, if this one's good enough, we'll send them to the school to be made good like us um, until the whole world speaks one language and has one project. And the one project and the, the image of the one true body is praised across the globe and submitted to, essentially, across the globe. So we explored last week how this idea of empire forcing people to fit into one narrow image of good humanity is not such an ancient concept. Uh, but actually continues to dominate our imaginations even today. And I know this, and I felt it uh, particularly strongly this week. We looked at the history of this in our own land with the Doctrine of Discovery and the Indian Act. The Indian Act is a, a Canadian act where Indigenous children were gathered to a colonial court where they were forced to fit into a narrow version of what a good human looks like and acts like and speaks like. Indigenous children had their hair cut, their clothing and ceremonies outlawed, and they were given new names, just like Daniel. We'll see that in the next part here. Um, I learned uh, that an Indian agent is what this person would be called. The Indian agent would travel around to different sovereign indigenous nations across Canada. Uh, and as a way of cataloging and counting the conquered peoples, he would give them new names uh, that fit his understanding of what a good name is. Uh, so Bob Joseph is the author of a book called 21 Things You May Not Have Known About the Indian Act. Um, it's a fantastic little book. It has been in our library, but I think someone has signed it out. But it is uh, profound and, and shocking and deeply Canadian. And uh, in this book, um, he says, uh, the quote I have here is a little longer than the one on the screen, but I will read the one on the screen. He says, uh, traditional naming practices did not make sense to the Indian agents charged with recording the names of all people living on reserves. The diversity of names and naming practices also made record keeping difficult because at different points in their life, um, certain indigenous peoples would be like given a new name. So you'd have multiple, you'd have like, oh, this is my this name, and this is my this name, and at different stages you'd have a new name. Uh, and so the Indian agent does not, had a hard time kind of cataloging these people. While there was not a uniform approach adopted by all Indian agents to the renaming process, uh, generally the agents assigned each man a Christian name, and more often than not a non-native surname. And women were given Christian names and then assigned the surname of their fathers or husbands, which was not a known practice before. And so the Indian agents on the west coast of Canada often used biblical names 
repeating them as they work their way through their jurisdiction, which explains the frequency of unrelated families that share common last names among First Nations people in Canada. Often, also, the Indian agent would use his own name. Uh, and as all agents were male, um, virtually all of the surnames given to Indigenous people are male names. And this book was written by Bob Joseph. Uh, it's ironic that the first peoples of Canada have surnames that only date back to a few generations because that is certainly not the case for ancestral names, which date back to creation. Traditional names and naming ceremonies and many other cultural traditions were discouraged and in some cases outlawed. Indian agents and missionaries worked under the mandated assumption that all First Nations would, through one policy or another, eventually abandon their traditions and culture and blend into the prevailing Euro society, thereby eradicating the Indian problem. So the Indian agent was tasked with eradicating the Indian problem. And Bob Joseph says this about his own name. Um, he says, this is how the process would have unfolded. I would be asked my name. I would say, and uh, white lady here, I, I'm probably not going to pronounce this properly, um, Kaksum Nikwala, and they would have written, but they would have written down Bob Joseph. Often I am asked if I am related to the Josephs from the Squamish First Nation, to which I, us I usually reply, no, but I'm sure we had the same Indian agent. In Daniel 1, the next few verses, it says, The king assigned them a daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine. They were to be educated for three years, so that at the end of that time they could be stationed in the king's court. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the tribe of Judah. But the palace master, or the chief unit, gave them other names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah, he called Shadrach, and Mishael, he called Meshach, and Azariah, he called Abednego. So this isn't just like, um, in the Babylonian way, just like, what's a cool sounding name I could give you? Um, but their names are actually kind of mocking their ancestral or their true name. The, the name Daniel means God is mighty, uh, but he's given the name Belteshazzar, which means protect the king, which is kind of an ironic, like, my God is mighty to save. And he's like, your new name will be, no one's going to save you. Protect the king. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious or Yahweh is generous. Becomes Shadrach, which means I am terrified or I am suffering deeply. So if your name, and, and like, like, you know, your name might mean something in another language, but um, like land-oriented people's names mean something in their language. So their name is literally Yahweh is generous. Hey, Yahweh is generous. Could you pass the salt? Um, and then you're given the name, I am suffering deeply. Uh, Mishael is a question. Uh, it means, who belongs to God? And his name is changed to Mishak, which means, who belongs to Aku, which is the Babylonian moon god, which means, not you. Who belongs to God? Not you, is the new name. And um, lastly, uh, Azariah means, Yahweh has helped me. Uh, he becomes Abednego, which means, slave of Nabal, which is another Babylonian god. So imagine the dignity that comes with this name. Yahweh has helped me. And then you are given a new name. No one is coming to help you. You are a slave of Nabu. The boys are given a new name by the crown. Names that fit within a Babylonian paradigm or names that mock their ancestral ways of knowing. Names that mock their birthright of sovereignty and autonomy. So Daniel and his friends are given new names. Most of us grew up, myself included, hearing the stories about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, there's songs about it we sang in camp, like, uh, and to bed we go. This is like a bedtime chant, but it's like, oh, Shadrach, Meshach, and to bed we go. I don't know, that was just me. Um, but those were the names I knew. I, I didn't even remember off the top of my head until this series that their true names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
And this has struck me because I think today in this cultural moment where we live uh, and breathe and, and, and notice, uh, we sometimes hear people call Calgary Mokinstis. Uh, and, and now when I hear people call Calgary Mokinstis, I will remember Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And, and when I hear that uh, what was formerly called Morley now has a new name, Manithni, and what was formerly called Hobima, uh, these are reservations uh, near Calgary, is now called Masquachis. Or when I, when I learned recently that the Queen Charlotte Islands, which a lot of Canadians know about, are now called Haida Gwaii. Or a couple years ago, Mount McKinley was changed to Mount Denali. Um, one of my favorite mountains uh, in Canmore, I can't even say the name because it's so disgustingly racist, uh, recently got a new name in Stony, Anukatha Ipa, which is a lot harder to say than the racial slur. Um, but now I have learned and realized and found myself um, profoundly moved uh, by the fact that these are not new names being given for the purpose of erasing the true name or the true history. These are the true names being recovered from empire. And that has made me um, reflect on my trans friends who go by a new name or new pronouns. And when part of me wants to resist and say, no, I will call you by the name I've always known you as, I am now finding myself considering that if I only ever knew Hananiah by Shadrach, and the new name was actually a recovery of the true one, not an erasure of it, I might consider believing a person when they say with their own lips, I am Hananiah. And I know this because this is what my people call me. I remember being moved and um, totally blessed uh, by my friendship with Osi. Uh, and when she told me the beautiful story of how she got her name, she told me that her mother, uh, who saw in her her true name and beheld her as truly beautiful, gave her the name Osi. So I'm like, that is your true name. And I will call you Osi. And I realize this is a profound story of uh, these men, these boys would know each other by these names, um, but the people out in dominant society would refuse to use those names and would call them by these names instead. So in Daniel 1, 8 to 16, uh, it says, um, because now, um, if you remember in the verse before, um, they've been given new names and they're going to go to this thing for three years and be trained uh, and fed a, a special diet to become Babylonian. It says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine. So he asked the chief eunuch to allow him not to defile himself. Now God allowed Daniel to receive favor and compassion from the chief eunuch. I love that. It's like maybe they were um, in solidarity together. He said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king. He has appointed your food and your drink. If he should see you in poorer condition than the other young men of your own age, like we don't want you to look like one of the conquered peoples. If you're going to stand in our court and represent us, you have to look like a mighty strong warrior like us. If you were to look the way you look, it would bring us shame. Um, uh, if, if, um, if you were to, in poorer condition than the other young men of your own age, you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel asked the guard whom the palace master had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he calls them by their true names, please test your servant for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. You can then compare our appearance with the appearance of the young men who eat the royal rations and deal with your servants according to what you observe. So he agreed to this proposal and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was observed that they appeared better and fatter than all the young men who had been eating the royal rations. 
So the guard continued to withdraw their royal rations and the wine they were to drink and gave them instead their vegetables or uh, like their ancestral food that they felt most comfortable with. This part of the Daniel story has really disturbed me this week um, to the point where I wanted to get someone else to do this sermon. And so um, let me ask you, have you ever heard of the Daniel diet? Have you ever gone on the Daniel diet, the Daniel fast? Um, here in this ancient, ancient story, we see uh, the beginning of the project uh, to change the bodies of the conquered peoples. They have to go on a special diet until their bodies stop looking different. They must look Babylonian, and so they're given a new diet until they fit the mold. And as someone who has a, a fairly long uh, and complicated history uh, with kind of disordered eating or this idea that um, my body doesn't fit the good mold it should, um, I'm, I'm sometimes fighting an inner war um, that people can't see, um, and, it, and it's just exhausting. It's like so loud in here. Um, and I've gone on the Daniel diet, uh, and I've gone on the Esther diet. We were born at a time and a place where there is one narrow image of the perfect body, the perfect woman and the perfect man. And I'm not sure we've often asked ourselves, who told us the perfect body looks this way and not this way? Uh, instead, we're kind of raised to blindly submit to the dominant beauty standards. Until we twist and contort ourselves into a tiny prison cell where nothing lives and nothing thrives. Um, I'm struck by the fact, um, it says they were um, better and fatter and immediately that word just obviously spins me off. Like that's never been a good word in my life. Um, and uh, so I'm like, what is going on in this story here? Like that's, I, no one told me that about the Daniel diet. I learned uh, that uh, in ancient Mesopotamia, the dominant beauty standard looked a lot different from ours. People who were considered beautiful back then um, were people uh, with larger bodies. So as to symbolize wealth and restedness. Uh, someone with calloused hands and a lean, muscular body um, looked like a slave. Um, but the real men, the real Babylonian men, had larger, softer bodies and soft hands um, because their time uh, was reserved for intellectual uh, pursuits and uh, rest. And in our culture, however, um, if you've ever read Jesus and John Wayne, a fascinating historical uh, summary of this idea that real men in the West uh, are men with calloused hands and lean, muscular bodies, uh, whereas uh, real kind of good women in the West have smooth, manicured hands and thin, kind of wispy bodies. Uh, at least that's what I was told, I, I think. Um, in fact, there's an image here. Uh, uh, someone got AI to generate the image of the perfect man and the perfect woman. Uh, even in 2023, uh, when I feel like our generation is reckoning more with um, the problems of this, that AI uh, says this is still the dominant image. And as soon as I see it, I recognize something deeply familiar, like a 10-year-old Nikayla knew that is the goal. Um, and the goal that subtly um, so many of us feel uh, forced to achieve. And so um, there's a major shame uh, poured out on you if you deviate from this norm or if you begin to pursue a goal that doesn't end up here. And even this text in Daniel has been co-opted by empire. Um, many evangelicals have written books and gone on the Daniel diet. And if you, if you think this is just like a weird niche, like conservative Christian thing, Chris Pratt, the guardian of the galaxy, um, in 2019 went on the Daniel diet. This is his quote. He's on Instagram. He says, okay, hi, Chris Pratt here. Day three of the Daniel fast. Check it out. It's 21 days of prayer and fasting. And he was doing it to get ready for his part on a film. And uh, the film is this one. And the image here looks a lot like the image that the AI said is the good one. To say you have to go on the Daniel diet if you want to have the good body. 
My mom, uh, I, I love her. Um, she's a 90s mom, so I don't think this is actually like her causing harm. It's just her living out the harm that she had been uh, enacted on her. But she put me on a diet when I was eight years old, uh, my first diet. Um, I remember it was after swim practice. I was at the Mac store and got candies because I liked going to get candies after swim practice, like all little kids in the world would. Um, and she just told me that like my tummy was getting a little big. Uh, and uh, so we were going to eat healthier as a family. And it was this really sweet thing, but you have no idea how sharp those hooks were <laughs> that latched into my brain. Um, and what's weird is I was eight years old when that happened. Um, and while that hook was still in there, um, I also noticed at the same time um, that pastors and elders and mentors in my churches were also speaking about the female body, um, a body as causing distractions and causing stumbling. I was paying attention to the world around me, and I came to understand that no one would love me if I took up too much space. If I had too big of an appetite, if I had desires or opinions, or essentially if I had a body at all. I learned from a young age that I needed to shrink, I needed to need nothing, and essentially disappear. And if I took up space, I was considered dangerous or bad. Someone put a voice in my head when I was eight years old that is always attacking me and putting me down. And then when I began going through puberty in the church, someone told me that that voice was God's voice. When I was growing up in church, I had to listen to endless discussions about the scriptures and what they said about women in church leadership. I remember holding my breath in these conversations and debates because my calling and my giftedness was obvious, but I had no access to the decision-making. My soul wanted to be free to preach and teach and join the mission uh, and feel that joy in the house of God, but there were these gatekeepers, and they could admit that the scriptures weren't super clear, and, and, and they just couldn't put gifted women in the pulpit because they needed to discuss the issue of our body first. And I remember this, like, the discussion would first be like, well, what do the scriptures say? Can women be preachers or not? What do the scriptures say? And then when that conversation didn't really get them to like, a clear place, they turned on our body. And I remember, and um, you, some of you may have heard me say this before, but I remember being in the room when they would just publicly wonder about menstrual cycles and PMS and hormones and emotional stability. They would inquire into our fertility and our wombs and our relationship status. They wanted to know how our husbands felt as joining the mission. I remember in a commissioning service, um, elders putting their hands on my body and praying for my fertility, praying that I would conceive godly children and honor my husband as if he were Christ as if my soul and my name and my story wasn't even in the room, just a dangerous female body. And I know that if we go back in history, um, we remember that this has happened over and over and over again, um, whether it's kind of, well, what about a woman's body in a place of authority? Um, we could go back and remember that in the civil rights era, even though the black church served as the center of the civil rights movement in the South, there were many uh, white leaders of North American denominations who passionately denied the personhood of black people and debated about the role of black bodies in relation to white bodies. And white clergy would not perform weddings for interracial couples. And white parents feared that desegregated schools went against the scriptures, and so they instituted private Christian schools. And much of our history in this land is a history of forced assimilation to the one good body or the one acceptable body but here I meet Daniel, who resists. And he says, I will eat my traditional sacred diet. I will eat the food my grandmother taught me to eat. I will eat what feels good and what nourishes me and what provides me with mental clarity and energy and focus and the ability to sleep well. I will not be forced to fit into this box. 
And perhaps this is inner strength and determination, and perhaps this is a traumatized little boy who misses home. In Daniel 17, 117 to 21, it says, To these four young men God gave knowledge and skill in every aspect of literature and wisdom. Daniel also had insight into all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time that the king had set for them to be brought in, the palace master brought them into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among them all, no one was found to compare with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they were stationed in the king's court. In every matter of wisdom and understanding concerning which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel continued there until the first year of King Cyrus. There's so much here. Uh, and essentially this phrase, existence is resistance, is what uh, rings through for me. That th this is not a story about a young person going on a diet so as to become stronger and better than others. This is a story about a young person resisting the cultural pull towards wanting to be better and stronger than others. Resisting the pull towards the big tower that goes up to the sky. Resisting the pull towards becoming great, towards having a name that is above all names. This story is about resisting the pull to become mighty in a tiny box. Daniel does not eat the food the empire is serving. Daniel does not offer his body up for the empire's appetite. And my beloved church, this is what moved me this week. In the beginning of this story, in the beginning of chapter one, you don't have to go back, I'll just refer to it because you might, you might not have like fully noticed it. Um, we are told at the very beginning that the king laid siege to Jerusalem captured the king of, of Jerusalem and captured the precious items from the temple. And he came and he put them into the house of his own gods. There's a whole other story there, but I was like, okay, Bible nerd alert, slow down, Nikayla. Remember when um, Samuel, early in Samuel, when their Ark of the Covenant was captured and put in the palace of Dagon. Uh, it's like, first, before the king can come in and force you to assimilate to the perfect body politic, he has to take your God away from you. He has to tell you uh, that this is not actually spiritually true. None of this is true. None of this is real. Your God is now a servant of my God, and they tell you that um, you are not actually a true believer. You don't have a true religion, and they take that from you first. And we're told that he does this. He takes kind of those, those symbols of their own spiritual authority and places them in his own temple. And we read that, and we imagine that maybe Israel's God was captured. And that maybe this would be a story of great suffering and great loss. But instead, we discover here by the end of chapter 1, a God who is innocent as a dove and shrewd as a serpent, sent into the world like a sheep among wolves. Because God was not taken away from the people of Israel. God went ahead of them into the house of their oppression. When Daniel got to Babylon, God met him there. As if to whisper, the king is lying. In the next chapter, the king in the story, Nebuchadnezzar, will have a dream about his own body. And he will wake up and build a massive image of his body and force the world to bow down and worship it, as if to say, become like me. But we don't have to bow down to that image. God made himself an image, and that's you and that's me. And Jesus, the image of our invisible God, never forced or shamed anyone. He said, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. And when the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. Do not conform to the ways of this world. He said, you are mine. 
I have rescued you. I have bought you back. Who told you you were too big or too small or too tall or too short or too fair or too dark-skinned? Who told you you weren't enough or you were too much? Who told you to hate your body or the face in the mirror? Who told you to fear your neighbor or to worry about tomorrow? It was not me, says the Lord. I was there knitting you together in your mother's womb, and I can tell you true, you are wonderfully made. Whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me, says Jesus. So when we take these little ones at eight years old and say, your body's starting to look like it's not going to fit the mold and the AI is going to be concerned, says, that was not me. I did not do that. And when we do that, when we take little ones and tell them you're not allowed to wear nail polish or have a pink blanket, you're not allowed to play with those toys or like that sport, we know that we are telling Jesus that he does not fit in our boxes. And I wish I could, I sometimes wish, I all the times wish I could go back to that little person I used to be. Before diets and beauty magazines, before Chris Pratt and Daniel diets, I wish I could go back to that little girl who could cry when she wanted to be held, who could grimace when she was experiencing something she did not like, who could laugh and shout again, 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 whenever she experienced delight. I wish I could go back and tell the world no when I meant no, and tell the world yes when I meant yes. I wish I could go back to that little girl who trusted that there were ears to receive the voice that came from my lips. I wish I could turn and meet Jesus on that road and hear him tell me again about being reborn, about being given another chance, about starting again, about being released to the gift of being alive, of being told your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Beloved, you were not called to fit. You were called to become. So come and become. Bear the image of the I am. Be sent in peace, beloved. You have been invited here. Awaken Church is located in McKinstis, specifically the neighborhood of Bonas. Most of us are settler descendants who have benefited from the legacy of colonialism and forced assimilation, which continues to harm the people of this land. We are committed to reckoning with our history and taking action towards reconciliation as envisioned by Indigenous leaders and knowledge keepers. Treaty 7 was signed not so long ago between the sovereign nation of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Stony Nakoda, the Sutina, and the Canadian government. We honour that at the heart of the treaty was a dream for a shared future, and we wholeheartedly believe in this dream. For information on who we are and how you can support the work of Awaken, check us out at awakenchurch.ca. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Awaken Bonus.